detection is really the key to improved survival. If we can find a breast cancer when it's small and not involving lymph nodes, we can talk about upwards of 90% and better survivals. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today our guest is Doreen Agnes. Doreen is the co-director of the Stephanie Spielman Comprehensive Breast Cancer Center's High-Risk Breast Cancer Program here at the James. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Breast cancer, what increases someone's risk of getting breast cancer, and how Doreen and her team use genetics, screenings, early detections, and advances in research to save a lot of lives. Thanks for being on the podcast, Doreen. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start with this number that I, I found today. 266,000 women are diagnosed with breast cancer every year. That's, that's a big number. It is a big number. And uh, it can be higher in certain populations, people who have other risk factors for breast cancer. That's the general population number. Right. So what would increase a woman's risk of getting breast cancer? So there are a number of things that can increase breast cancer risk. Probably most women think about family history. So having a close relative with breast cancer, particularly if she were diagnosed at a young age. But then there are other things like uh, having previous biopsies, particularly if they've shown uh, cells that are atypical, and that can also increase risk. What does that mean, an atypical cell? So um, when we do biopsies, there are a lot of different findings that we can have. And some are non-proliferative changes, which means that they're just something that showed up on the mammogram. It's not a, a cell that's growing more rapidly. There are some that are more proliferative changes. That's when the cells are growing rapidly. Um, but the atypical hyperplasia or the cells that are growing rapidly that look atypical don't really meet the criteria for cancer, but are just not normal cells. They look a little funny. They've developed additional changes. And having that atypical increases the risk of developing breast cancer down the road. Okay. And what are some of the other risk factors? Uh, you know, certainly things like obesity, um, because estrogen is derived from fat cells, and so that can increase the body's estrogen exposure and increase uh, breast cancer risk. Things like uh, excessive alcohol intake, um, those are the main ones that we think about, some of which we can change and some of which we can't. Now, some of the things you can't change will be a genetic mutation, right? Yes. So what are, because we've heard about this, the, the BRCA gene, or I'm sorry, not gene, but genetic mutation. That's yes. the big risk factor, right? Well, yeah, there are two BRCA genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. And they just get those names because BRCA1, it's for breast cancer. And it was the first gene that was discovered, and BRCA2 was the second gene discovered. And those are the ones that people know the most about because they were di discovered really in the 90s um, and for which the vast majority of hereditary cases of breast cancer are caused by. Um, but there are other gene mutations, too, that we test for now. Um, the testing has changed over the past several years. So we, when we test people with a family history, we usually test with a panel of genes that includes these BRCA genes and a number of others that can increase breast cancer risk. So there are probably genetic mutations out there that, that researchers haven't discovered yet, right? Oh, for sure. And, and it's probably the ones that we've discovered are the ones that are associated with very high risks of cancer by themselves. 
very likely there are combinations of genes in certain patterns coupled with certain environments that will increase our breast cancer risk, but those are harder to test for because they may not cause as striking a risk as some of the genes we've already discovered. So we, so we I mean by we, I mean you and researchers know about the BRCA, and that stands for the BR is for breast and the CA is for cancer. Yes. Um, how much does that increase someone's risk? So the BRCA genes, if someone is a carrier, for example, the BRCA1 gene, they have about a 50 to 85% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer. And there are also other cancers that they're at risk for, the main one being ovarian cancer. And the risk of that could be as high as 45%. So 50 to 85% risk factor of getting cancer if you have the BRCA1 as opposed to, I think, is it like 10 or 12% for the normal female population? Yes. So that's very elevated. BRCA2 is associated with a similar breast cancer risk, but a slightly lower ovarian cancer risk, about 27%. And the general population risk of ovarian cancer is about 1% to 2%. So that's also very increased. So that's where you and your team come in. When you've diagnosed someone or with BRCA1 or 2 or they have a family history, uh, do they get referred to you? How, do, how does yes. that happen? How does it work that someone becomes a patient in your high-risk breast cancer clinic? Well, many of the patients are referred. Some, based on their family history, just call us and schedule appointments on their own. But we look at those criteria. Certainly, if there's a genetic condition that increases breast cancer risk, those would be appropriate patients to be seen in our high-risk clinic. Um, or if there's a strong family history, even if a mutation has not been detected. And by strong family history, I mean people who are diagnosed at early ages, like a mom who was under 50, or a couple of relatives with breast cancer, um, or um, other mutations, like I alluded to before. There are genes called PALB2, which stands for partner and localizer of BRCA2, so similar Breast cancer risk's not quite as high, um, but a number of other genes, TP53. Oh, I've not heard of those. The PL, say that one again, the PL. PALB2 or PALB2. And that's a genetic mutation that increases someone's risk for breast cancer. That's correct. Yeah. The risk in that syndrome is not quite as high as the BR risk, but it still could be in the 30 to 50 or 60% range. So certainly still much elevated over the general population risk. So someone comes to you, a woman, and and we should mention that men can also get breast cancer, although the risk is a lot lower, right? Yes. Um, Men do have breast tissue and can get breast cancer. In the general population, the risk of male breast cancer is less than 1% of men. In carriers of a BRCA mutation, particularly BRCA2, although it can happen with BRCA1, the risk is in about the 6 to 10% range. And it's interesting you mentioned that your co-director has the BRCA gene, right? Yes, and I think he's very public about that. Um, And yeah, he is a carrier of that mutation. His name is uh, Sagar Sardasai, and he was on our podcast and talked about that. And one of the things he mentions, it's important for men to know that they have this, and I'll let you tell us why it's important. Yeah, I think men sometimes don't realize that they can get breast cancer. And so often, since men don't realize it, and they don't really do screening as women do, um, it can be caught in an advanced stage if they're not knowledgeable. So yes, knowing that the that men can get breast cancer is important. And knowing you have the BRCA1 or 2. Yeah. It would, and also, it, since it's hereditary, right? Yes, it is. And it can be inherited from either the mother's or father's side of the family. And is it a 50% 
Yes. So if either someone's, if your mother or father has it, one of them has it, each child has a 50% chance of inheriting the BRCA one or two. Yes. And that, okay. And the, and down the line for generations and generations. Yes. Okay. But of course, it does not skip generations. So if someone does not have it, they cannot pass it on to their right. children. And that's important to know, too. Absolutely. So someone is at high risk. They uh, come to and are, are part of your clinic. What do you then do? Yes. So if they have not previously had genetic testing, part of our program is they would meet with a genetic counselor and go through their family history in detail to determine what testing might be appropriate for that family if it hasn't already been done. If we already know they carry a mutation, then that part of the program is not really necessary and we would just proceed based on those test results. Um, We would also calculate their risk based on a number of models if they don't have a genetic condition that can help us estimate how likely they are to get breast cancer. So because of some of the other factors that we talked about, like having a prior biopsy that showed atypical cells, um, having, you know, one thing I didn't mention earlier is having an early onset of your period and a late menopause or not having children, those years of unopposed estrogen can increase breast cancer risk. Those are relatively minor factors compared to some of the other things we've been discussing, but all of those can be entered into a model to estimate the risk of getting a breast cancer over someone's lifetime, and that can help us figure out how best to treat them. Do you actually put like a percentage on that, that this woman has a 60% chance, this woman has a 70 do you, do you put an actual do. number? We do, we can. So there are models through the NCI's website that I use during clinic and plug in all of the data, the woman's age, when she started her periods, whether she's had children, and if so, at what age? Has she had prior biopsies? Does she have close relatives with breast cancer? And putting all of that information into this model will generate a risk of breast cancer over the next five years and over her lifetime. Uh, and that's based, and, that's yeah. based on thousands and thousands of Correct. people's uh, medical histories. Yes. And then there are other models for people who have family history but don't have a mutation that we can look at close relatives, first and second degree, like your mom and your aunt, for example. And we can look at their ages of onset and predict based on that epidemiologically, what is the chance of them getting breast cancer? Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Doreen and we're going to talk more about the uh, preventative screenings that her, her and her team do and why they're so important. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Doreen Agnes, and Doreen is the co-director of the Stephanie Spielman Comprehensive Breast Cancer Center's High-Risk Breast Cancer Program here at the James. And did we mention your co-director is... Sagar Sardesai. Right. And again, yep. he was on the podcast before and is doing yeah. some great research on on breast cancer. So let, let's talk a little bit about why it's so important when you've determined that someone is high risk. Why is it important to do these screenings you're about to talk about and, and obviously catch their cancer early? Yeah. So I think early detection is really the key to improved survival. If we can find a breast cancer when it's small and not involving lymph nodes, we can talk about upwards of 90% and better survivals. And so we want to find the cancers early. And in some of these high-risk populations, 
we might have a risk for cancer at an earlier age. And if you followed routine screening guidelines, wouldn't catch those because, you know, we don't start until 40. Right. Mammograms until 40. So yeah. that has been the, the key to increasing the long-term survival rate is, is detection, screenings, awareness, education, right? Yes, correct. And that, that's been a great advance in breast cancer treatment. It really has. And so I think women are very familiar with mammograms, which we also still do in the high-risk population once a year. But there are other screening tools we can use that may make the screening more effective. Um, in certain populations, we can do what's called a 3D mammogram or a tomosynthesis. And that's a, a little higher radiation dose. But in women who have denser breasts where cancers might be hard to detect, especially in the high-risk population, it might be worth the increased radiation exposure to be able to detect cancers that might hide in otherwise dense breast tissue. And that James has these Say the name of the, those machines. It's it's a three D mammogram, or also called tomosynthesis. Tom, right, I've heard the tomo machines, mm-hmm. and they're they're becoming pretty widely known by women. And and the James has Absolutely. is at the forefront of this. Okay, yeah. so that's an, an incredible three D picture that really helps you when you're looking at it detect cancers small cancers that you could miss. Yeah, that could be hidden, especially in people with dense breasts. Um, another thing and that we... De- dense breasts, well, that doesn't necessarily mean a, a woman that's larger, right? It's just no, the tissue itself? The tissue itself. So the density of the breast is always graded on the mammograms. And so as women age, the breasts become more fatty replaced. Um, but in younger women in particular, the breasts are very dense because that's the, the, the ductal and lobular tissue that you know is able to lactate and, and do the uh, functions of the breast. And that makes it harder to read a mammogram. Yes, that dense, dense tissue. tissue is harder to see through. So if yeah. the breast is fatty replaced on the mammogram, it's easy to pick up a new nodule or new calcifications. But if there's a lot of dense tissue, it looks very white on the mammogram and cancers can hide in that. Okay, so a mammogram, 3D, and then... Yeah. There's another step, right? Sure. In people who have hereditary risk, so someone who might have a BRC mutation, or someone who has a risk that's based on their family history that's over 20 to 25% uh, over their lifetime, uh, the addition of a breast MRI can be helpful in screening to detect cancers when they're smaller and less likely to involve lymph nodes. So how often are these screens administered? So uh, the MRI is also an annual test. We often in the high-risk clinic will alternate it with a mammogram. So we'll see them at six-month intervals and at one visit get their mammogram, at the next visit get their MRI. So that six-month interval, I I'm, I'm take that to mean that if, if you do an MRI and there's nothing there, there's no cancer, even if it started like a week or two later, after six months, it's still so small that your yeah. ability to treat it's going to be high. That in six months is not a long period. Six for months is not a okay. long period of time. In fact, you know there is good data to support. If you think about cancer, it starts as one cell. Right. We can't see one cell, even with the best mammogram or MRI. We can't see tumors until they're about a hundred thousand cells. So most cancers, even when we detect them early, have probably been present for a number of years before we can even see them. Yeah, and some cancers grow slower than others. So it, yeah. they, they, like, I think prostate cancer can be around for years yes. and years before it's either detectable or, or yeah. becomes a real problem. So. And, and a lot of breast cancers have been present for five years by the time we even know they're wow. there, even in the earliest stages. And so then, then once again, if you can detect it early with these women or men who are at high risk, again, your, your treatment options are just there's more and the outcomes are better. Yeah, yeah, 
and we can conserve the breast, you know, in, in women who want to do that if they have small tumors, et cetera. Now, some women, and th- this has been in the news off and on for years, elect who have genetic mutations, even before cancer is diagnosed, elect to have um, surgery, right? Yeah. Um, certainly there are women, when we see women in the high-risk program, we not only discuss these screening tools, but we also discuss how can we manage their risk or modify their risk. And there are a number of things they can do. One of them, the kind of the most aggressive way they can manage their risk is by removing the breasts preventively. That lowers the breast cancer risk by about 90 to 95 percent, not 100 percent. It's not 100 percent. It's not 100 okay. percent because no matter how good a job the surgeon does at removing the tissue, there are slips of breast tissue that extend up to the skin. And uh, so you, we always leave a little bit of breast tissue behind no matter how good a job we do. Now, you, you mentioned that word modify the risk. That's an interesting word. So obviously surgery is one option. Are there other options? Yes. The most well-known and what's been around the longest is a drug called tamoxifen, which is called a selective estrogen receptor modulator. So it blocks estrogen in the breast tissue and lowers the risk of developing breast cancer by about 50%. Wow, because estrogen is a factor in breast cancer, right? In many breast cancers. Not all are driven by estrogen, but it's, uh, it is a risk factor. So women who are at high risk, they, they take tamoxifen for how long? Um, at this point, uh, women who are at high risk take it for about five years. That's the most commonly used drug. There are some others, but uh, that are that are similar to it. So you have these detailed, long conversations with women to determine how you're going to approach these things. Yeah, we absolutely do, and we're always trying to do research to try and figure out are there safer ways we can modify a woman's risk of getting a breast cancer. And so there are studies that are being developed looking at dietary interventions to try and lower women's breast cancer risk as well. Oh, you mean how, how can someone change their diet to lower their risk? So um, there have been some studies that have been done at the James uh, that show that certain, um, certain things in foods can lower risk. Um, one of the one of my colleagues, Dr. Sardesai, who we've mentioned before, is doing a study looking at dietary based interventions, looking at a celery based diet. Um, so there's a celery based banana bread that women eat to lower their breast cancer risk because this substance found in the celery, the apigenin, has been shown to slow progression of cancer in some studies. And so we're looking at it in this high-risk population. Now, that study, meaning is that a clinical trial type study? It is. It's a clinical trial that women in our high-risk breast program can potentially participate in. So there's something, so women who are being treated here at the James for breast cancer have that option to be part of those clinical trials. Yes. And there are other studies too, some looking at medications like metformin, which is used commonly for diabetes and looking at how that can influence breast cancer risk with doing uh, fine needle aspiration biopsies of the breast to look for atypia. So you've been, I, I don't even know the, I've never asked you this, how long have you been a doctor? Well, let's Roughly. see. Roughly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to date myself here. Um, I gr- let's Just see. say around. Do you know well, <laughs> I have been on faculty at the James since 2004. Because the reason I ask is in those, in those years that you've been here in the faculty, how what improvements in the research and the screenings? I mean, it's really changed and improved a lot. Yeah, I think with the widespread genetic testing, uh, the improvements in uh, screening technology going from uh, film screen mammograms when I trained to digital mammography to these 3D mammograms to the addition of MRI, you know, we certainly can find ever smaller cancers. What's that like for you 
to, you know, be the co-director of this high-risk clinic to be able to uh, help women and and detect these cancers early. You're like you save lives like every day. Yeah, well, I try. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's particularly um, satisfying. You know, it's always satisfying taking care of a patient with cancer and taking out their cancer. But um, in some schools of thought, we think maybe we're a little too late if we wait until they have cancer to try and take care of it. Maybe if we could prevent the cancer, that would be an even better way to address it. And that's why working in the high-risk clinic is particularly nice, because we can hopefully prevent women from ever getting cancers. Do you think that when you look ahead 10, 15 years, what do you, what do you see? Um, I think that we're making a lot of advances in the care of breast cancer, um, and hopefully we'll make these similar advances in prevention so that we're maybe doing less aggressive therapies for women so that we can still uh, improve their lives without really altering their quality of life. But that ha- that that whole aspect of quality of life has changed for the better. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that we are constantly trying to um, reassess what we do and how it benefits and hurts our patients to minimize the risks while maximizing the benefits. But no matter what we do at this point, there are certainly downsides to the treatments that we do. We pay that price because we can improve their survival. But, you know, we really want to try and be thoughtful about what we force women to endure long term in their survivorship um, as a consequence of the treatments we give. But that brings us back to the whole concept of screening and detecting early. So I think for me, at least that that bottom line and the key message here is know your family history. If there's any family history, talk to your primary care physician who in turn may refer you here to the James to a geneticist to your team. So just knowing your family history and taking steps if there is one seems to be the key. Absolutely. Because, yeah, if we can detect things earlier, that's a better outcome. And if we can prevent it, even better. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And thank you for all that you and Sagar and the team do at the, at the High Risk Breast Cancer Clinic. My pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.